0: Welcome to the Sales Development Podcast, the only audio forum focused and dedicated to helping sales development professionals get better at their jobs and push the practice of sales development forward. This is a place for practitioners in the trenches every day getting to die, whether they're called SDRs, BDRs, ADRs, or others. It's a team charged with creating pipeline out of inbound lead activities and outbound approaches. My name is David Delaney, and I'm the host of the Sales Development Podcast. If you've got subjects you'd like to hear covered on the show or guests you'd like to hear from, hit me up via email david at tenbound.com or LinkedIn or Twitter, or be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, or wherever you found us. Right. And I am on the line now with Carrie Simpson, who's the founder and CEO of Managed Sales Pros. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us on the Sales Development Podcast.
1: Oh, thanks for inviting me, David. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah, I've been dying to get you on the show. We've been trying to put this together for a while because I just enjoy our conversation so much. And. I love the fresh um, attitude and perspective that you bring to the whole sales development field. You, it's just been great getting to know you and i um, really excited to introduce you to the listeners on the Sales Development Podcast. So thanks for making the time. Uh,
1: no problem at
0: all. Awesome. So let's jump in. Um, <laughs> tell us about Kerry Simpson. What's your background? How did you get into this whole crazy world of sales development and cold calling and all the stuff that you do? over at Managed Sales Pros, and then I want to hear about your company and what you guys are doing.
1: Well, I started telemarketing 20, ooh, probably like 25 years ago now, which means I'm dating myself a little bit, but my first job was telemarketing for AT&T, selling long distance, years and years ago, and uh, it was pretty good at it. And I ended up starting a business mostly because I felt like I was hitting my quota in like three hours and it was taking everyone else eight. And I didn't understand why I had to work eight hours if I could hit my quota in three. So finally I was like, you know what, I'm just going to start my own business and do whatever I like. But... It's kind of a tongue-in-cheek commentary, but mostly I started my business because I had a small child that I didn't want to put into daycare. And cold calling was something that I could do for other companies from the comfort of my own home on my own schedule, you know, or while I was nursing my infant daughter. So that's how Managed Sales Pros began. I had a baby. I was doing some consulting for some enterprise software companies. I worked for Reynolds and Reynolds. I worked for Ivara, now Bentley. I worked for MapInfo, now Pitney Bowes. And I developed the SDR programs at those companies. And I always felt like I could translate that into something that would be useful both for enterprise level companies and for smaller businesses. So I started doing little one off projects here and there. And then through word of mouth, I ended up being introduced to a managed service provider in my local market, a referral from a marketing firm I had been working for. And they said, hey, can you, uh, can you, do sales development for managed services, and I said, of course we can. And then I googled managed services, <laughs> and the rest is history. <laughs> so, you know, we've uh, we've gone from you know myself on the phone myself four years ago to uh, a team of fifty now, and you know it's been pretty solid. It's uh, an interesting business because we were never required to purchase anything. We had no expensive overhead at the beginning, so our company was essentially profitable from day one. We didn't have to take on debt. We didn't have to take on investment. Now, I've, I've been to a lot of startup events in the Bay Area where when people hear I run a services company, there's almost like an audible silence in the room saying like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> like, what is it that you don't like about my services business? The profitability of it or the ease with which I started it or <laughs> like, what is it that is so unappealing about this? Well, you're not scalable. Well, we've done pretty well in four years, so I am uh, I beg to differ on that one. We may not scale at the level of software companies, but for a services-based business, we brought something to the market that people don't really care to do themselves. We figured out how to do it better. We figured out how to do it faster, and we figured out most of the time how to do it cheaper, especially for companies in the Bay Area.
0: Nice. So, I love that. And it's important, I think, if any of the sales development leaders on this podcast are listening to do what Carrie did, jump on the phone every once in a while, even if you 're managing like a team of like fifty people, you know jump on the phone and start making cold calls and running through the system that you 're putting in place for the SDRs. It is an immensely humbling experience and will give you a new appreciation for what the SDRs are doing when you say That's it's okay. very true <laughs> no, and I, I also like the point about the services business. Um, Because I I think, you know, where you're probably going with that is software as a service has become such a huge thing in the last 10 years that if you aren't selling something that is software as a service or, you know, infinitely scalable on paper, then people are just, they're like, what is this? (laughs) (laughs) Is that what you found?
1: Well, we found, for example, when I started my business, I was in uh, my 40s, my early 40s. So most of the programs for, in Canada at least, to help companies accelerate are focused on, you know, young entrepreneurs. So you have to be under 30 to qualify for any of the grants or funding or programs that they're running out of the incubators in Canada. So, I mean, I was very fortunate. Um, Our company was, you know, incubated by a group called the Eureka Project out of the University of Manitoba. I had a phenomenal mentor. His name was Gary Brownstone. And... I actually did business development and market validation for the Eureka project immediately prior to starting Managed Sales Pro. So it was a natural progression for me helping these startup companies figure out whether or not, A, they had something that the market would buy, and then B, how were they going to sell it to the market? And then when uh, when the funding process changed for Eureka Project, they all of a sudden said like, hey, we're not doing this anymore. We're only going to work on um, pre-commercialization, not acceleration. And my role was 100 percent acceleration. That's kind of where managed Sales Pros came from. So it was naturally we were already there. We already had an I already had an office in that building. And they, they said, well, we'd love it if you'd stay here. And so I had access to all of the things that most of the tech startups would have access to now, right? I had access to legal advice that I probably couldn't have afforded otherwise. And I had access to um, accounting teams that gave us advice on how we could run a business in two different countries. And, of course, I had access to people like Gary Brownstone who could come in and say, like, hey, have you considered this? Hey, what about that? So, I mean, I did have a lot of benefits that most services companies starting up didn't have. But I also didn't have the, um, I didn't have to develop proof of concept for anything, right? We're telemarketing. Like you need telemarketing or you don't need telemarketing. There was not a lot of market validation for us. We we found clients right off the bat. We were able to add people as we required them. We didn't have to create expensive prototypes. We didn't have to look for funding. Like we didn't have any of the issues that a lot of startup companies have. You know, I feel like I got all the benefit that a tech startup would get with none of the... Uh, you know, potential horrible failure that those startups or those software as a startup companies get. But I seriously, I go to these events in Silicon Valley and, and people are almost like, Oh, services. <laughs>
0: well, that's it's nice almost like a, di- a dirty word. Yeah. yeah. I know.
1: And I'm like, Profitable, year one, year one.
0: Now, that's not a dirty word, right?
1: (laughs) Well, and we couldn't get funding anyway, right? So uh, Canadian banks are very conservative. So, you know, I was running a million dollar payroll and I still had a line of credit that wouldn't pay for two weeks worth of my payroll. So that was one of the biggest challenges. Nobody looked at our business plan and said, wow, infinitely scalable. Here's a bunch of money. Everyone looked at it and said, when you've got three years under your belt and you know, you're profitable, come back to us. Oh, look, I don't really need a line of credit at that point. (laughs) I need it now. So we did have different struggles, but we also didn't require, um, you know, engineering talent. Like we have 50 people and we have 50 people with, you know, an average salary of $15 an hour. Or sorry, 50 people with an average salary of $15 an hour. So we're not looking at the crazy overhead that comes with starting a software as a service either. We have found an interesting niche supporting those companies, so I'm excited about that. Like how, I was really eager to find a place where we fit in with that whole, first of all, proof of concept, right? So when somebody comes into an incubator or an accelerator with a great idea – How can we help them identify quickly whether or not people are going to buy it, how much they might spend on it, whether or not it's actually a viable idea? So one of the things that we really tried to focus on in Canada was can we work with these companies to help them identify whether or not they'll be successful and the government was especially interested in that, saying like, OK, before we throw all this grant money behind this new software as a service, can we figure out who's going to buy it, how they're going to buy it, how we can best sell it? So we got to, to take on some interesting business over there while we were developing this really profitable managed services niche. So we've done some really exciting stuff in the last four years.
0: That is really interesting. And so would you say a company was trying to figure out if they had a viable product? Would they pay your service to go out and figure that out for them? Yes. So that, Those were initial customers that you had.
1: We can find that out fairly quickly, assuming that the company wants to listen. Right, So the difference between what we do and what people normally would do for market validation are we go right to the, we go right to the people that they're going to target, right? If they're going to say, "Well, we believe that we have uh, a niche in, I don't know, engineering firms that work uh, on I don't know, name a vertical. Something very specific. And we believe that this product is going to do this for them. They're going to replace this product with them. Whatever the preconceived notion that the entrepreneur has, they can hand us all those theories and we can go to the market and actually find out organically whether or not, first of all, is the problem you're trying to solve actually a problem or did you just make that problem up? Are people actually experiencing it? So, for example, we worked with an organization that was developing um, something around Google Glass. Their theory was that people that were climbing hydro poles, for example, weren't going to be able to – couldn't do their jobs as effectively because they had to climb down the pole and then they had to get out their tablet or they had to get out whatever and they had to write all their stuff down. They weren't seeing things in real time, so they had a theory that people that were doing these these jobs, these heavy industrial jobs, could use Google Glass to um, to speed to, to fix the process a little bit. And what we identified at the first round of their market validation was, in fact, that nobody was thinking about that at all. Right? Like that wasn't the problem. So if they had gone to market with trying to solve the problem that they thought was actually a problem, without validating it, they would have gone into the market with people actually saying like, no, no need for that. No, we wouldn't buy that. No, we need to do it this way because of that. So I think a lot of the times entrepreneurs look for a problem. And they create a problem that doesn't actually exist. So if you do some organic market validation, you can go in and identify like, hey, this person is experiencing this problem. They would replace this software if there was something better available. They would budget about this much to do that. I mean, everybody wants a better solution, but are they going to be prepared to pay 20% more for that solution? Maybe not. So there isn't a lot of value in, example, procuring a list of 1,000 companies with a particular contact name. And then calling all of those people when, quite frankly, the decision-making process is going to be very different from company to company and vertical to vertical. So what we can help companies do at that stage is go in, figure out who actually makes the decision and how does it get made? Is there a collaborative team of eight that makes the decision? Does one person at each organization make the decision? So we can actually help them while we're validating their ideas. We can help them predict how they're going to be successful with sales development in the future. So we'll figure out not just who does this need to be sold to, but how do they buy?
0: That's so valuable because in that Google Glass example, they could get some funding based on convincing sales deck that they put in front of an investor group, and yeah. so they, now they've got a million dollars, and they're kind of almost doing it backwards, where there's not enough information to know if they can actually sell this this product. And what you're saying is. You know, you would scope out a project with your SDR team and be able for a fraction of the cost that they might spend, come back to them with some actionable insights.
1: Yeah, instead of sending, you know, $100,000 on uh, some sort of research project that may, that will essentially tell you anything you want it to, right? So if you go to a research firm and say, we need it to say this, here's my $100,000, it'll come back saying that. Right? Like, here's what we want you to validate. Here are the six points. Validate these. But quite frankly, then you end up with uh, you know, investment revenue that's based on something false. Or you end up with grants that aren't going to take you anywhere that quite frankly could have been given to an organization, especially when you look at the, what the intention of those grants are, they're to create jobs. You know, like that's why the government is giving us money to develop systems they want jobs in Manitoba they want jobs in Canada and if you are falsely validating things saying like yep yeah, this is going to go and it's going to create 100 jobs and they're going to look like this you know that money could have been given to an organization that could create 100 jobs
0: right exactly and i think about you know the way that most sales development teams are set up you know, at least here in the Valley is, you know, Hey, we've, we've got, we've got a set of products. Um, We've got a pretty good idea about who our ideal customer is. We've got a pretty good idea about who our main persona is. You know, we may or may not have spent a lot of time researching that, but, you know, based on our contracts that we've already sold, here's who we think that we should sell to, you know, they've got a pretty good idea about that. And so it's like, okay, um, SDR, here's your set of tools, here's Salesforce, here's Salesloft. here's your list of names, um, you know, go ahead and set up a bunch of meetings. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, in, in listening to you and how you've set things up, there's actually a lot more, there's another layer, I think that people are missing in just that middle part of trying to find out what is the decision-making process at the companies that you're trying to go after? Who's all involved? What are they concerned with? You know, all those things are kind of, they're missing from the whole SDR equation. And it seems like that's something that you guys really focus on.
1: Well, I think there are two different ways to create programs. So when you, when you at the beginning, when you're creating the plan or the process that you're going to follow, To generate successful appointments. So if we're talking SDR only, right, like the SDR's job is to get to the appointment. There's two different types of programs that you can run. You can run a displacement campaign, or you can run a disruption campaign. You're going to build both of those campaigns differently, but displacement assumes that they're already solving that problem, and you're going to provide them with a better solution, but it's still pretty much the same solution, right? We're going to approach every company in the world that's using Maximizer and we're going to sell them Salesforce. That's a displacement campaign. And it'll be contingent on a bunch of things, right? When does our Maximizer license expire? How many new users will be added over the course of the next three years? You know, what is the, the change management that comes along with it? What's the pricing? So there, that displacement program is largely based on, on luck and timing. And the best sales call in the world doesn't bump somebody that's already in a relationship with someone where there's an end date involved, right? Most reasonable people don't break their contracts just because somebody came up to them and had a pretty good idea. They wait till their contract is over and then they buy. They buy something new or they renew their contract, right? So you've got all of this timing involved. So that is a, a much easier program to run. You can use less expensive sales talent to run it. And it's mostly just collecting data and babysitting leads. Then when you look at a disruption campaign, which is really what everybody wants to achieve, right, they want to find that one thing that people can buy without considering how it's going to completely replace something else at their organization, right? So they've got, trying to think of a good example here for disruption. And disruption is really in the eye of the company, not in the eye of the company that's selling the solution. Right for a company that doesn't use a CRM, Salesforce would be disruptive.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm thinking Salesloft and Outreach. You know, five years ago, you were trying to run it through Salesforce, and it was just a mess. And then they came and disrupted that by creating a pane of glass just for SDRs, and created almost like an industry there but
1: Ugh, don't get me started on that. Okay. Uh,
0: a <laughs> bad example. But to your point of disruption, I mean there wasn't something like that there that that would guide the SDRs through their daily workflow, but I'm, But
1: I'm watching the market yeah. slowly like there are companies that I know that we both know who are spending 5-600 dollars a seat on let's call it their SDR stack. Right. They bought this thing and then they laid this on top of it. And they put this on top of it and then they did this other thing and they're inventing these fancy words for the things that the product does. Like where did the word cadence even come from? Right? Nobody used it and now it's everywhere. You know what cadence is? It's follow up calls. You should be scheduling them anyway. You don't need an algorithm to do that for you. All right? I get really, really frustrated as I watch people make these enormous investments in six different software solutions, where they're only really using 20% of each software solution anyway. And then they're kind of sitting on the shelf wondering what the next thing they're going to add to make it more effective. Like if you've bought Salesforce, if you made a major investment in Salesforce, and you're not using it to 100% of its effectiveness, and you've decided to add three other things on top of it before you figured out all the stuff that Salesforce can do, you're creating a big ball of mess, within your organization right like you've got now you've got six things that you have to teach someone how to use you got to pull reports from all of them technically they should talk to each other but they don't really it's really frustrating to watch
0: it is i've seen it happen it's like you plug something in the person who plugged it in left the company and nobody knows how to use it anymore the reports (laughs) don't talk to each other and then the next silver bullet comes along and you okay, let's plug that in. And now there's 27 different things. And that's why I love talking to you. You bring a fresh perspective to blow that up. What should people be doing instead of plugging in the next silver bullet and trying to configure all these things if they've already made those investments?
1: Well, I think a lot of the times people are hoping that they can buy something that's going to eliminate the need for the human aspect of prospecting. Right? They're looking for the thing that's going to pull the the four out of the 100 follow-ups that you have, which are the four that you need to make first. Ideally, when you've made the right hires, they know that. They know what four people they need to call today before they do anything else. You don't need a $100 seat of software to tell you that you should call the four people that are you know the highest up on your prospecting list today. So people, I think, are focused less on, are we hiring great people? Are we teaching them to have the right kinds of conversations? Are we allowing them to be human in their approaches or are we just feeding them 16 lines of sales script that they are not allowed to stray from? And are we trying to know how much of their jobs are we trying to eliminate with software? SDRs aren't expensive assets, right? Probably in the Valley they are more than anywhere else. But I mean, the minimum wage in Las Vegas is $7. I can hire an SDR. I mean, we pay pretty well here, but I could technically hire an SDR for $8 an hour that's not a huge investment to have personal touch for all of my prospects.
0: When you when you hire someone, you spend a lot of time at the upfront, you make sure that you have the right person. And then how do you get them up to speed so that they can make the calls and be more intelligent in their outreach?
1: Well, I think first of all, people are expecting SDRs to be miracle workers. Right? Like do your SDRs need college degrees? No, probably not. No, the job of the SDR is to get your sales team appointments. So I think quite often people are prepping their SDRs to have conversations that really aren't relevant at that point in the process, right? Depending on where your handoff point is. So for us, for example, we work with some fairly complicated software companies, but I mean, I personally could not tell you how the software works. And I still can train all my SDRs on how to get appointments for it. And I think there's quite often people are really making the SDR role more complicated than it needs to be you're hiring a sales rep or you're hiring an SDR. They are not the same role. And quite often people hire SDRs with the idea that there's going to be this fantastic career path for them, right? Then SDRs, they're going to be an SDR. Then they're going to move into inside sales and then they're going to move into sales and then they're going to go into field sales and then they're going to manage, right? They, they paint this picture of what this glorious life is going to look like for this SDR, except that if you're hiring correctly, your SDR would be a horrible sales rep and vice versa. We don't hire people with any of the top five characteristics that sales reps need. The SDR is a completely different role. It's far more customer service focused. What you want in an SDR is somebody that's going to show their work, somebody who's going to create a valuable pipeline for you, identifying, especially in that displacement campaign that we talked about. So if your sole role is to knock out competitors, your SDRs should be solely focused on gathering data points. When do those contracts expire? Who are they working with now? What are they spending on them? What are they going to consider buying next? Who's going to make that decision? That's what you want your SDRs doing. Anything more complicated than that, you're moving into the realm of sales.
0: Okay, and then are they setting up appointments in that case, or are they, they 100% dedicated to the data gathering?
1: Uh, the whole point is they can only set up an appointment if all of those pieces fall into place at the exact right time. Right? How often do you think on the first call somebody says, hey, yeah, we were just talking about that for sure. Come on in tomorrow. It doesn't happen. Like We might hit one of those per client every 90 days if we're lucky. right? And we've got 50 people here calling outbound 100 dials a day every day, and we might get a couple of those a month. Right? You have to work your leads.
0: Okay. The SDRs have a, a certain number of data points that they're trying to gather every day. That's their mission. Correct. And then when you say show your work, I love that. So they're adding that all. Do you use any sort of system like Salesforce or? A, we do. Okay. We uh, do.
1: We use we use Zoho.
0: Okay, so they're adding, they're g- gathering those data points. They're add, adding that in, and then they're setting the follow up mm-hmm. date for when the contracts come up or when something triggers, you know, a purchase.
1: Well, if you want to look at, okay, so let's look at the word cadence, right? So. The cadence for follow-up from an SDR team member is going to change based on contract end date, and almost exclusively that's what you're going to base your cadence on. So something that is two years out from becoming a real opportunity obviously is going to be approached differently than something that is two months away from a decision-making point or from a trigger activity. So one of the things that you can automate in the SDR process is follow-up activity based on something like contract end date. doesn't work so well when you're trying to disrupt, but for displacement, it works really well. So you identify when the thing should happen, and based on when it should happen, you can start creating follow-up activities. So this is where you start adding in things that aren't, outbound prospecting and I'm I'm only like only, only an expert at outbound telephone based sales prospecting. The rest of it I don't understand. I don't know a lot about
0: gotcha. But I, okay.
1: So I I mean we for our own sales pipeline for example we we touch people at a certain cadence we send emails at a certain time and that speeds up as they get closer to a point where they're going to be ready to buy something and that's what we do for our clients as well we create a process that is based on when they are likely to buy and then we build backwards from there but the if you think about the the SDR process or what the SDR is doing is imagine a um like a, a tumbling locker or a lock, you know, where you have to like this number falls into place and then that one, you've got six things. And when they all tumble into the place where they're supposed to be, that's when you get the appointment scheduled and not before you can't unlock it before.
0: Mm-hmm. Which I think so people if, are trying to do, you correct. know, and, the, and they're just imagine, you know, trying to tug the lock open if the combination's not, not there. Yeah.
1: Well, and that's what sales reps do. That's the difference between an SDR and a sales rep.
0: Okay. Right. If you That'd think about, about the
1: personality needed to sit on the phone all day, essentially getting zero results and collecting data, that is not a sales rep personality at all. The sales rep is going to try and force that. They aren't going to create pipelines for you. Sales reps don't show their work very well.
0: Right. Right. You know, like they want along. a win. Get it. Get it done. Get, get it started. So,
1: so even if you're missing two of the five pieces, somebody who's got an aggressive sales personality those high D's, those high I's, they are going to push for those appointments well before they're actually ready to be anything. So if you're hiring SDRs who have, you know, sales personalities, what you're going to get is a lot of weekly qualified leads far too early along in your process. If you're hiring the right people, they don't, they aren't motivated by the same things that sales reps are, right? Like our sales reps, aren't spiffed at or our pardon me our sdrs here don't get spiffed at all
0: okay there dude. is no bonus steady income
1: yeah there's no benefit to them to scheduling an appointment that had no business being on someone's calendar because there's no spiff involved they all make well above average salaries for uh for our city and for their role they get paid time off they get paid lunch breaks they get like they're we all we do is treat them really well
0: right and, and and there's there's not that pipeline expectation from a talent perspective when they come in. They're not like, all right, I'll do this for six months, and then I, I'll go ask to become a sales rep. It's more right. like I'm going to do this for 10, 20 years because this is a great company and they treat me really well.
1: That's what you're looking for in an SDR personality profile. You're looking for consistency. You don't want people who took on progressive responsibility over the last six years. You want somebody who stayed at the same job, the same exact job for three years.
0: Right. And uh, there's not a bonus necessarily for creating pipeline, creating meetings, things like that. And you find that that works okay?
1: It's working fine for us here. Is
0: there a difference with the disruption campaigns that you have to do or is it the same program as far as the displacement
1: you're going to use the same personality types but the sales process is going to be different right so if you look at a disruption campaign usually depending on um, you're going to require education for a disruption campaign so if you look at what a disruptive product would be it's not a matter of hey do you need a photocopy or not like you need one or you don't need one your old one's ready to die or it isn't right when you look at something disruptive the sales process is going to be significantly longer and there's going to be a huge education component at the beginning of your sales process. So the amount of work that gets done at the beginning is going to far exceed the close at the end. So the SDR's role in a disruptive product is significantly bigger than the sales rep's role will be, right? They're going to have to convince somebody of the value of talking to someone about something that nobody knows anything about yet. Right. If there's no brand recognition involved. So the kind of the the most disruptive sales process happens when there's a brand new company selling into a space that no one's ever heard of selling a product that no one's ever heard of. Right. If you look at somebody who's well established in the market selling something that everybody knows, like look at Xerox and photocopiers, that's the best example I can give of displacement. Everybody knows who Xerox is. So there's no education involved when you, when you call out and say, hey, I'm from Xerox. Everyone knows who Xerox is. I'm selling photocopiers. Everybody knows what photocopiers are. And now you either need one or you're going to need one in a year and a half. Right? That is the biggest example of displacement. Disruption is kind of scaled based on a couple of things. Like, first of all, brand recognition. Does anybody know who your company is? Have we ever heard of you? So if not, now I have to educate you on who we are why it's important that you take our call, how long have we been in business, who else works with us. There's a lot of education required around that piece. Then you look at the readiness of the market for whatever it is that you're selling. Is it completely brand new? No one's ever heard of it before. Now I have to educate you on how you're going to use this, what it's going to change for you. What's the ROI on it? How does it make you money? How does it save you money? right? Like It's a completely different program. So you're going to have to hire people who are probably far more expensive and better educated than the people that you would hire for displacement because they are going to have to teach people things. They're still going to have the same job at the end of the day, but they are going to do the lion's share of the heavy lifting, whereas a sales rep is just going to sign the contract. Like At some point, the the prospect will say, oh, I get it now. You're right. That's got huge ROI for us. We're interested.
0: Right. And uh, they almost have to become – product experts, you know, because they, 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 they're educators, really. And that, I'm thinking, um, I met with a guy a couple weeks ago who was starting the SDR program for a drone company that they fly drones over construction sites and farmland and different things. And it's a it seems like a perfect example of disruption because they're calling construction managers to talk about drones. And we're so early in that evolution that they're probably just like what, <laughs> you know.
1: <laughs> Those guys are still using paper-based accounting books.
0: <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, whoever's the SDR trying to go out and get appointments to talk about drones, I mean, they're going to have to really know their stuff. They're going to have to know the industry and, you know, the the level of education is tremendous probably there.
1: It is and it's also one of the more like, it, that's exciting. Right? like when you think about as an s d r trying to consider what my next career move would be, like i I would want to think about where I wanted to spend my time, where did I want to spend my focus and energy, right do I want to just ask people if they need a new photocopier every day all day, or do I want to actually have interesting conversations with business leaders about stuff that they maybe haven't even thought about yet?
0: yeah, yeah, right? it's interesting yeah. because the hiring profile. Here in the valley is very much come in be an s d r for six months, and then you'll get promoted and It's almost like you'd have to go into different markets with the approach that you're talking about. It'd be interesting to see if somebody tried it here and see see if it worked because we've got we've got the 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 xerox i mean it's it's like Oracle and some of those companies <laughs> where you know they just it's a very displacement type of thing, and then we've got tons of the disruptive one, which is more interesting. But there's such a dogmatic approach to hiring people here, it seems, where, yeah, you're coming at it from a different angle.
1: I think you need to make your SDRs into better SDRs, yeah. not into moderately good salespeople, right? Make your SDRs into phenomenal SDRs.
0: I love that. Yeah, yeah. Training, development, interviewing, really focusing on that. It's great. I, I want to ask you, though say I'm a client and I want to go out to market with let's say, a disruptive product, and I come to you, right, what's your process for helping that client from the info gathering to training your folks to setting up the process? How does that work?
1: The first thing we're going to do is shadow that company and watch how they're selling it already, right? So whatever it is, they want us to set up for them. So our goal is always the appointment here. We don't take it past that point. So my goal is to figure out how do I get them in front of the people that they want to be in front of? How do I eliminate the, how do I make it sticky enough that people actually attend the appointment that they've accepted? Like how much, um, how much do I have to give them to get them to the point where they tip from, I don't think so, to yeah, that sounds interesting. Right? And how do I get the information out of them that the client needs to know that it's qualified? So putting sales reps, you know, especially – so look at the Valley is a great example of that. You're paying your sales reps an extraordinary amount of money out there. You know, everything's expensive, including sales reps, and you don't want their time wasted. Right? There's no point in partnering with a company like ours. If all your sales reps do are sit on the phone and wait for meetings that don't happen because people no-show. So there's all kinds of little fixes that we have to do in the first couple of months of a program to figure out how do we get people to come to the meeting, how do we get them to keep the meeting, and how do we make sure that the people that are coming to the meetings are the right people. So we'll sit down with them, we'll review what they're doing already, and we'll take that back. And what I like to do personally, instead of being... You know, instead of sitting down and listening to somebody talk about their product for two weeks, I like to poke at it a little bit myself. Like I like to look, let, let me see all the marketing materials that you have and I'll take a black Sharpie and I'll cross out everything on those materials that isn't quantifiable. <laughs> like anything that you can't prove, I am eliminating from your marketing materials. We're the best, we're the greatest, we're the this, we're the that. No, 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 no. We're none of those things. What are the facts, right? What do people want to know? They want to know the facts. You cannot quantify the best at. Did you win an award? The foremost, the premier, the blah, 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 the blah. No, I'm using none of that. So I will take all of those marketing materials and I will t- strip it down to the bare bones. What have we got here that are facts that we can relay to somebody? I can tell people how long you've been in business. That is a fact, right? And if you haven't been in business very long, then we have to figure out how do we fluffy around that so that people don't ask that question. Right, there is a way to lead a conversation so that you can avoid talking about the things that you don't want to talk about. If you only have six paying clients and somebody wants to know who you work with, you've got to make sure the conversation doesn't go there. So, <laughs> yep. you know, how, how do you create a conversation that accentuates the things that you know are going to be exciting and downplays the stuff that you don't want to talk about? That's what we're going to try and help them figure out. Then we're going to build what we call talking points. We don't use line for like, we don't use word- for-word scripting here. We will make a list of talking points, which takes all of those factual statements and then we create open-ended discussion questions. So I never want my callers asking a question that can be answered with the word no. Right. So instead of asking a question that can be answered no, we take those questions and we turn them into questions that have to that have to be answered with something more thoughtful than yes or no. And then we do, but then we create a list of what I call closed-ended qualifiers. Right, there are some must-haves for people to to qualify to go on this appointment. You have to have some qualifiers, right? So do they have a budget of at least X? I mean, that has to be a hard closed ended qualifier. If what you're selling costs $50,000 and this company has a budget of 5,000, I'm not going to put you in front of them. So you've got to take them from you know here, especially in disruption, you're taking them from, Hey, you've never heard of me to, okay, I'm going to give you an hour of my CEO's time. Like that's, that's a big jump.
0: (laughs) And it takes time to put all this together. I mean, you know, you can't expect, you know, instant results right from this because there's especially if you're in the displacement stage, you're not going to set an appointment if their contract doesn't expire for 2 years and stuff like that, right? right? Yeah. I mean, it's not a pop-up instant, you know, toaster oven here. It's it's a long process, right?
1: Well, yes, and you've got this fail fast mentality in the valley, right? Like we're going to fail fast. Well, you need to you commit to doing this for a year, right? right. Like prospecting <laughs> isn't going to produce ROI overnight. So you have these poor SDRs coming in, and you know, three months in, they haven't made this magical number that somebody pulled out of the air, right? Like someone said, here's how much we should sell. Like, well, you guys have only been in business for six months. How do you know how much you should sell? Do you even know how long it's going to take? And you're grinding through these poor SDRs who technically need, like, as long, you can measure a couple of things to know whether someone's doing their job or not before there's some bottom line revenue to talk about, right? What we look at here are different key performance indicators. And as long as they're hitting those numbers, we know they're doing a good job. You can't make opportunities up out of the air, especially in displacement. You can't make it happen any sooner than it's going to. The best sales rep in the world isn't convincing a rational human being to break their contract, and you don't want irrational human beings on your client roster. <laughs> so.
0: <laughs> so what do you hold them to as far as KPIs? Um, is it activity-based and you just know, hey, if you're doing all this stuff every day, you're in good shape? We
1: have so We have what we call the three-funnel forecast here. So as opposed to there just being one sales funnel that goes from – lead to opportunity. We believe there are three funnels and I could talk forever about this, but technically what we're doing is measuring success in all three funnels, but you can't really look at funnel two until something from funnel one drops into funnel two. So your first funnel is really complete blank data, right? Like we've got, if like we do a lot of what I would call um, smile and dial or shotgun prospecting here, we take the coldest lists in the world and we turn them into something useful. So sometimes you won't have to go up against that. Hey, we know nothing about these prospects. Sometimes you get a really well-cultivated warm lead list and then funnel one and two aren't as important. But the first funnel, you're just going from raw data to confirmation, right? Like how do we make sure that the people that are on this list should be on there? So we're measuring things like are they, are they actually talking to people? the number of dials to conversations, like that's a huge KPI. How many times do the people that are dialing the phone actually get to talk to someone? So if you look at programs that are built around really weird variables and quite often, so let's look at Google as an example or Gmail. Half the time, a company will come to me and say, in order for this to be a good prospect for me, they have to be using G Suite. So immediately, the first question has to be, do you guys use G Suite? More important than how big is this company? Are they the right vertical? Are they the right anything? All of a sudden, you've got this list of ten thousand leads, and you're going to have to take that ten thousand leads and turn it into the three thousand companies that are actually using G Suite for anything.
0: So So if you're measuring, that could be that's that's you're still in funnel number one there because you're just winnowing it down.
1: So think about, you know, at 100 dials a day per person, and that's assuming they're using the right technology to make their dials, maybe having a conversation with, um, you know, 10 of those people, 20 if you're qualifying without going to the decision maker level, which is a really smart idea. I think a lot of the time companies are trying to qualify way up in the pipeline when they should be qualifying, when they talk to somebody, whoever picks up the phone, you should be using to qualify an account. All right, Like the receptionist yeah. can tell you how big the company is. They can tell you if they're using Gmail. There's no need for you to get decision maker on the phone to ask them qualifying questions. You can do all that work before you get to the decision maker and eliminate probably 40% of the dials that you're going to make if you can just get some random person to pick up the phone and qualify that account for you.
0: Okay, good. So you're gathering so, that data and then it goes to the next one. And, which is yeah.
1: people we've talked to to people who are qualified. Right? So if the first qualifiers, they have to be using Gmail, there's going to be size qualifiers put in next. Right. Like it may be you're one of the companies that doesn't matter how many people are at the most of our clients want us to identify good opportunities for them. So not sole practitioners or sole small office, home office. If you're going to pay for telemarketers, your ROI is going to have like there needs to be a big enough sale in there that you get some ROI back on it. So do they have a budget of at least X or do they have a minimum of this many users? Will they buy at least this many licenses? That's going to be your next qualifier. So you want to get all that information, the the combination lock we talked about before. That's all funnel two. Now we're going to fill in all the blanks. And as soon as we filled in all those blanks, then we're going to push for an appointment because we know this lead is qualified. And then you get the, you know, the third funnel, which is qualification to appointment. And that's just the SDR funnel, right? Like now you've got to start all over again with your sales funnel from, from your sales perspective.
0: Yeah. So is, your SDR is that funnel is, four then? I mean, once, once they've had yeah, the, That's the somebody else's problem. <laughs> <laughs> and I only
1: work at the first three. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think three three is, is uh, plenty. <laughs>
1: well, the KPIs from funnel to funnel will be different. So in the yeah. first one, you're going to expect a lot of blank space and on the second there should be far more like i would call them action cards right like there's far more action cards on the table in funnel 2 more should be happening you should be able to pull your numbers and see a lot of a lot of activity but it won't stray like project by project it won't differ that much right the the way that you predict whether or not somebody is doing their job is looking for anomalies in those numbers so if you know for if your usual numbers look like this 10% not interested 10% call me back 90 days, 10% maybe, or whatever your number, whatever your stats look like. The minute one of those numbers goes off, something isn't right, right? There's this, the, the rule of numbers doesn't change, right? The minute you can benchmark, the minute, like the, the minute you figure out that there's an anomaly in your, in your numbers on the back end, something's going. So that, for example, we found we found out we had a guy who was just dumping calls and watching YouTube videos all day. At the beginning, he looked like a fantastic rep for us, right? Like, wow, you know, like his dials are so high. And then then I dug a little bit deeper into it uh, a month into his employment with us and thought, well, that's really interesting. This number is really high, but this number is way skewed. I wonder what's causing that. So I started monitoring that particular employee and identified that they weren't actually talking to anyone. <laughs>
0: oh, boy. <laughs> or, Or you look at, you know, that and it says – are not interested where the, you know, the benchmark across the team is 15%. And it's like, are they just punting as soon as somebody answers or there's different numbers that you can look at to figure out what's going on?
1: So not interested is not a call disposition here.
0: We don't allow that one, right? Unless,
1: unless the decision maker, the only one who can say, I am not interested is the person who signs the check. Everything else, it's call them until you get a restraining order. (laughs) Right, <laughs> like there's
0: well no, yeah, a... you have the classic situation where someone comes back to you and says, yeah I called Coca-Cola they they're not interested and it's like <laughs> yeah Who you talked to one guy <laughs> That's crazy. But Carrie this is awesome. Um I I want to respect your time. We're coming up on the hour and um the one last quick thing what are you guys working on now? What's your kind of your project that is going to take you into 2017 that you're excited about? And, and, uh, and then how, how can people get in touch with you?
1: Well, we've offered a couple of new things for 2017. One of those things is pay for performance, which the market really, really wanted. Uh, so we've We've looked long and hard at that, and we're, we are we don't offer it to everybody. We primarily offer pay-for-performance to organizations that are looking to develop reseller, reseller channels. So we've got a couple of big and new projects starting come January that I think are going to you know, double our revenue for next year, which we're really excited about. If people are interested in talking to us about anything from you know market validation to sales prospecting and appointment setting, they can reach out to me. Uh, my email address is carrie at managed com, And that's C-A-R-R-I-E at managed with a D, sales with an S, pros with an S.com.
0: Gotcha. I'll put that um, on the you know LinkedIn and Twitter post when I post the podcast. And I'll also put it on my blog. Carrie, this is awesome. I mean, this has given me a lot to think about and just how people structure SDR teams and the type of people that they hire. And I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us and bringing us behind the scenes. So thanks.
1: Oh No problem at all. Thanks for having us.